me read these, uh, these verses and then we'll pray. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there, heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Well, Jesus answered, his voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler, will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard that the, from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Father, help us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see what is before us. We can hear these words in plain language. We can read them and they can go in one ear and out the other and make no difference whatsoever in our soul. That happened to this crowd. By your grace this morning, your children are listening, and we want to be changed. If you walk into these doors at all, not wanting to be here this morning, God has something for you right now. Open your ears to hear. Open your eyes to see. Father, grant these people in this room to do just that. We need you. We need you. Holy Spirit, we trust that you're going to help. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we talked about the pseudo-revival that happened in Jerusalem after the healing of Lazarus in Bethany. Word spread. The Pharisees were so concerned, we're going to lose our place, we're going to lose our nation, so we got to get rid of Jesus. Word continued to spread about Lazarus, so much so that the Pharisees made the declaration, the whole world has gone after him. What are we going to do? The city of Jerusalem, who previously, not long before, wanted to pick up stones to kill Jesus, the disciples said, Jesus, we can't go back to Jerusalem, we can't go back to Bethany, it's too close to that city, and they want to kill you. Well, Jesus goes back, does this miracle, and then as he goes into Jerusalem, people are laying down palm branches and declaring him to be the Messiah. A radical transformation happens throughout Jerusalem. I mean, there was this buzz to the city. There was this mighty act that was happening. People were coming around and saying, is he the one? Is he the Messiah? And then they're declaring, he is in fact from God. He is the Holy One from God. And they lay down the palm branches. Everybody's going on. The buzz is there. And then all of a sudden, within a short period of time, very early on in this week, the week starts off with this massive revival, and then very quickly things turn the corner. Look ahead. I'm not preaching this today, but I want you to see this in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So early in Passion Week, early in Passion Week, 
it went from praise to hatred. Or at least from belief to unbelief. It went from the city abuzz about this coming Messiah to Monday, possibly, not believing in him. How, how does this happen? How does it happen so quickly? It almost seems unbelievable. How does the city go and the Pharisees go from saying the whole world's gone after him to all of a sudden, just a few days later, people wanting to kill him? It's just, it's alarming. It tells us a lot, I think, about human nature. But Jesus, after this newfound popularity, started immediately, we saw this last week, started talking about death. There was a group of Greeks who came to see him, and he started talking about now is his time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus came to this earth to die. And apparently, they don't like him talking about that. That doesn't fit their bill of what they believe a Messiah would be. They don't like it. But the question needs to be asked and answered, why did Jesus come to this earth? What's the bullseye? Like, what's the center, the reason, the main reason that Jesus came to this earth? There are a few reasons given in the Bible for us to consider. In this very book, John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I came that they have, may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about life abundantly like a $52 million jet. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of life that can be lived and received to the person in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. Or the kind of life, the abundant life that can be had in a third world country right now from people who are scraping by to survive. I'm talking about the kind of life that can be had for the prisoner that's behind bars who is freer than any other person in that place. Jesus came to give that sort of life. When your circumstances don't go the way you want them to, you're still living this kind of life that everybody else looks at and wants. How are they peaceful? How are they joyful? How can they fight through the sorrow? How can they even fight through the joy? Because some of the most happy people in the world have everything in the world going right for them. Some of the most unhappy people in the world, excuse me, have everything in the world going right for them. It's a crazy thing to see somebody who has a lot of stuff and they're actually happy. Because most people who have a lot of stuff, they just laugh a lot. But they're not truly happy. Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. So that is a reason that Jesus came. Jesus also came to save us. Luke chapter 10, verse 19, chapter 9, verse 19, verse 10 says, The Son of Man came. Okay, why did he come, Luke? Dr. Luke, tell us. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. One of the reasons Jesus came to die was to come and find you. Let me just tell you this quickly. Jesus has never been lost. You were. And he came to find you. And he's really good at hide and seek. So he came to seek and to save the lost. Is there anything else? Are those the only reasons that Jesus came? Are they the main reasons? A list of questions to consider. What is so significant about Jesus' death? 
Why is the whole second half of the Gospel of John about the last week of his life, of Jesus' life? What's so significant about Jesus' death? Why do we wear crosses around our neck? It's the only other instrument of death, or it's the only instrument of death that we wear around our neck. Does anybody wear a little electric chair around their neck? No. Why do we wear it around our neck? Jesus' death and resurrection is this cosmic, so to speak, nuclear explosion that changed everything. And there are some main things, but then there is a main thing, like a main thing, bullseye center, why Jesus came to this earth. There's cause, there's effect. Jesus died for sinners. That is near the core. It is near the bullseye reason why Jesus came to this earth. But there is an even closer bullseye than Jesus dying for sinners. The death of Jesus was for a greater purpose than your salvation. Your salvation isn't for you to be saved and have your sins forgiven and that's it. There is a reason prescribed to those who are saved that God has given us. There is a bullseye reason, the cause and effect. Okay, There is a cause, Jesus dying for you. And the fact is that you would become the bullseye reason for which Jesus came to die. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. In verse 27, we get a pre-Gethsemane moment. Jesus is troubled. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' soul is troubled. We've got to ask the question, why is his soul troubled? We have to use some biblical and systematic theology to understand that because right here we're not told. But we know when we look at the other gospel accounts and consider the work of the cross, what was happening to Jesus leading up to Passion Week, we can know for certain what's troubling Jesus' soul. Jesus was about to feel the shame and the sins, shame for sins he didn't commit. He was about to feel the wrath of his heavenly Father. This is an agony that is incomparable. He is not... In trouble, he's not troubled internally about physical pain. I want you to think about the worst sin that you've ever committed. Worst sin you've ever committed. Or sins that you've committed. Think about the worst season of your life where you were not living well, where you were making foolish choices over and over again. Have you ever felt shame, guilt for those sins and seasons of life? Have there been moments of your life that those feelings have been overwhelming? Where you just didn't know if you could even think about it anymore? Look to your right. Actually, look to your right. Look to your left. 
okay? See these people, the row you're sitting in? Okay, Richard, you got to look behind you. Richard's a front seat Baptist. What if you had to feel not only the shame that was on your shoulders, what if you had to feel the shame of every person in your row, the sins that they had committed in their life? Feel the weight, the guilt of those decisions. And what if you were to be punished not just for your sins, but for their sins? What are you feeling internally? What's happening inside of you? The sinless one, Jesus, who had lived the perfect life, who is marching obediently to the cross, is troubled internally because for the first time ever, he was going to feel the wrath of his heavenly Father upon him for sins he didn't commit. It was as if he sinned. He didn't become a sinner. He was counted as a sinner. It's important to understand that, by the way. He was obedient to the point of death. And he was feeling this. In this pre-Gethsemane moment, you have Jesus praying the almost identical thing he prayed in Gethsemane. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? His soul is troubled. Save me from this hour, God. So he's troubled. The cumulative sin and rebellion and shame that is in this room is overwhelming. It's too overwhelming for any one person to bear. You can't even bear your own shame and sins. The agony, the feeling, the weight of Jesus feeling my sin. The sin I have committed in my life leading up to this very week. The shame that I feel in my life for the foolish things I've done. He felt that. Yeah, his soul was troubled. The wrath of God was coming for him. He was feeling my shame and your shame, feeling the weight of carrying our iniquities. Well, what will Jesus say to this trouble? Because when we're in moments like that, we want just anything, we, if we can just get out of that, if we can just shake that feeling, if we can get that gut feeling to go away, if we can get that shame, we run to the cross again, and we're, then we're upset and that we're still feeling condemnation and thinking, God, I need forgiveness for thinking condemnation on myself, and, and we're a mess. Where, where do we go? We try to get out of it, and here is Jesus. God of the universe could have gotten out of it, could, could have called angels down, could have in any moment walked away and said, I don't want I want you to feel the weight of your sin, and I want you to be punished justly for your sin. You have sinned against me, and it would be right for you to die for your sins. But he doesn't. He remains. What shall he say? Save me from this? Save me from this hour? What will Jesus do? Will he submit to his Father? Will he submit to his heavenly Father when God's will for his life is not comfortable? When God's will for his life is the worst pain in the history of the world? 
Yet what does Jesus do? He obeys. He submits. He trusts the goodness of His heavenly Father in a way that Adam in the Garden of Delight and Eden in the Garden of Delight in a way they doubted God's goodness and here is Jesus feeling the weight of our sins and He trusts, God, you're good. I'll obey. I'll do what you've called me to do. I will obey you. See how quickly Jesus remembers His purpose. For this purpose I have come to this hour. The reason Jesus came to this earth was to die. He was born to die. His whole life leading up to this moment, every righteous deed that would be counted as ours, every internal feeling that was correct and appropriate, he rejoiced in the Lord his God with all his heart, loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of every day. The nitty Gritty details of a life of obedience. It, it runs up into the challenge in an everyday grind of life and work. We're spirit-filled believers in here. We have the Holy Spirit of God and we go to work. Many of us in air-conditioned places. And we sin. We get frustrated. And we're in air-conditioning. Some of us work outside. We go outside and we get frustrated and angry and we don't act appropriately to co-workers or friends or neighbors or spouses or children. And here is Jesus working as a construction worker with his dad every moment, every single day, growing up, learning the trade of his father. I said this before, but the construction industry is not necessarily known for its ethics. Now, there are ethical construction workers, fortunately, but it's a hard job. Working in the heat of the day, working with your hands, tools, hands calloused. You ever smashed your thumb with a hammer? It's not fun. It really isn't. And here is Jesus, the nitty-gritty details of his life, all leading up to this. And he was obedient every single day, every moment of every single day. It wasn't simply his, simply, it wasn't just his death that was substitutionary in your place. It was his life as well, leading up to these moments, up to this week. He lived a righteous life for you. In your place. Because the life you lived filled up this piggy bank of emotions that you now feel when you look back and look at the sin that you've done and the seasons of difficulty and rebellion you've walked through and the shame that you feel. Jesus lived perfectly every moment of every day. This great reversal or exchange is happening. He came for this hour. Passion week. That's why Jesus came. Life, death, resurrection. Make no mistake, Jesus does teach us how to live. He does teach us about holiness, law, and grace. But Jesus came in this world to die. But to die for what? For who and for what? Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. The hour, the purpose for which Jesus came was to glorify his Father. I want you to catch that. He died for sinners. 
but he came for his father's glory. So there's a connection here that's important for us to understand. Three weeks ago, I started the sermon off talking about how you aren't the center of the universe. That I'm not the center of the universe. God is not man-centered. He's God-centered. And that's a really, really good thing. Jesus didn't come and die for you and then tell you, now, live for yourself the rest of your life. Because I came for you. He assigns, prescribes a purpose for us whom he died for that's beyond ourselves. He came for a greater purpose than saving sinners. Jesus saved sinners to accomplish this greater purpose of glorifying his heavenly Father. Now turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. James, you may remember this. Carol, you may remember this. The first sermon I preached at Christian Covenant several years ago was 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Because I wanted them, and now I want us, to see the purpose of our salvation. Why are we breathing? Why did Jesus come? Why do we exist? Why do I live another day? Why do I breathe another breath? Is it for me? Or is it for a purpose beyond me? God, please let it be for a purpose beyond me. I'm not that interesting to live for the rest of the days of my life. Look at verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now he's not talking about the world here. He's talking about believers. This isn't just humanity. This is the bride of Christ. Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, comma, that. You are who you are for a reason. That. What comes after the that? That you may proclaim the excellencies. Ryan, thank you for that. The beginning. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10. Let's just read it. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The bullseye of your salvation is not your salvation. The point that Jesus came to the earth, the, the, the center of this universe, is not us. It's not the bride of Christ. Jesus came to die for sinners, to rescue his bride, so that we would become worshipers of God. That we would no longer live for ourselves, that we would no longer see ourselves as the center of everything, that we would be rescued from this self-centered life and we could finally live for something bigger, something better, for God's glory. Now, if we step back, and it's easy, and I, 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 amen, we ought to all be amen into this. So one, two, three, amen. amen. Okay. And it's easy for us to amen, but I want you to stop and consider that point. Jesus coming for you was for something bigger than you. Are you okay with that?
that now your life and your life's mission isn't your own. Jesus tells you, here's what this was for. Here's why I came for you. You're a worshiper now. You, your life, your heartbeat, the blood running through your veins, you exist for God, for His glory. Yes, I love you, but I love my Heavenly Father more than I love you. And I want worshipers for Him. That's the bullseye. Every major historical confession of faith in the history of the church starts like this. We exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God is the center of this universe and God is the center of the believer's heart. That you may proclaim these excellencies... Jesus came to gather a bride who would worship him and declare, I was once not a people. I once had no identity. I was once lost in sin. I was walking in darkness. But then my Jesus came along and he pulled me up out of this darkness. And all the rest of the days of my life, I will proclaim the Jesus who rescued me from my sin, rescued me from death, rescued me from darkness, and called me into this marvelous thing called life. That's why we exist. Changes everything. Turn back. The people apparently didn't hear this. And it was like words that went one ear in ear, one ear, and went out the other. Kind of like me when I was a student growing up. Foolish. Walking in darkness. There's more back there. Miss Vicky can tell about that. Jesus said, I'm, I'm telling you these things and it's for your sake. I'm telling you these things, all this, for your sake. Look at verse 28 and 29. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Another said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now this is, this is interesting. Three times in the Gospels, God the Father speaks to God the Son verbally. This baptism, the transfiguration, and here, three. Baptism, transfiguration, and here. And Jesus tells us that the words that are coming down were not for his sake in this instance, it was for the crowd. Now, the point of the Gospel of John is evangelism. It's evangelism and instruction. So, I tell you these things, these things I've told, these signs I've told you about, that you may have life in Jesus' name, and that by believing in Him, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you have life in His name. We're going to see that over and over again, starting out in, like now. This call for belief, and we see that all through the Gospel of John, but even to a greater degree as we, as we move forward. God the Father speaks and He says this to the Son, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And Jesus says it was for their sake, not His. But the crowd doesn't hear. To them it was just thunder. And I want you to notice the change that's happening from the, pra the praise that was given at the beginning of the week 
to the deafness to the voice of God that's happening right now. Out of their mouths earlier that week, just a day or two before, they were proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Droves upon droves upon droves of people. Jesus starts talking about his death. He starts talking about the glory of God, the purpose that he came to die. And the people begin to close their ears and they don't even hear God the Father speaking. Oh, that's thunder. Or the angels speaking. They're revealed to be in darkness. How is it so quickly that people are fickle? Let me ask you. How fickle are you and me, even at an emotional level? Okay, you non-emotional men, you're just as emotional as your wives. It may come out differently, non-stereotypically, but you have your internal battles as well. You have your battles up here as well. Following Jesus doesn't mean that we need him less. Growing in godliness means walking away from sin, but it also means growing in dependence upon Jesus. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more holiness that exists in our lives, the people who are the most godly don't look to Jesus and say, I need you less now because I'm more holy. The most godly people I know are the ones who are clinging to Jesus saying, I, I have to have you. I desperately need you. I can't live this life without you, Jesus. But the crowd closed their ears. They didn't like the voice of God. <laughs> They've changed their tune about Jesus. The city which was quick to praise him as he walked in, was quick to shut him down, they thought, when he started saying things they don't like. Look at verse 30 and 32. Jesus begins to speak about his death. Now for them, the Messiah, we'll see in a second, the Messiah is not supposed to come and die. This Messiah is supposed to come and make Romans die, overthrow Rome. Jesus isn't supposed to come and die, but Jesus begins to speak about his death in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus talks specifically about his death. And he says three things primarily. These are not con like conclusive things that Jesus does on the cross. But there are three things that Jesus brings us to consider about the cross. Number one, now is the judgment of this world. The cross is God's judgment on the world. I don't know if you knew that or not. Every single person who's ever lived, their life has been weighed in the balance. Billy Graham, one of the most famous sermons that he's ever preached was called The Offense of the Cross. You can get on YouTube and watch it and his thundering voice comes on and you just watch that and you just sob just by hearing his voice. Even if you don't hear his word, you just listen to him speak. It's like listening to Liam Neeson or something. You just, you know, like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And, uh, speaks about the offense of the cross. Here's why the cross is offensive. The cross says to the world plainly, when it's understood, 
You are a sinner. Now is the judgment of this world. And the cross declares, you don't measure up. You deserve this. This is God's judgment on your life. You deserve a cross. You deserve God's punishment. You deserve God's wrath. To every single person, every man, woman, boy who's ever existed across every culture, across every timeline in the history of the world, from Adam and Eve forward into this life today, the, the judgment upon humanity is a cross. That's what you deserve. It's a window into eternal judgment. This is what we deserve. God's judgment upon us. No one measures up to God's law. Everybody is guilty. God approves of no one. And the cross declares that truth to the world. You are a sinner. The wonderful, inviting message of Christianity. But praise the Lord, that's not it. That's not all. The flip side of that is that the cross, this judgment of the world, also declares God's mighty love for sinners. Because of the truth, on the cross, as he is pleading in the garden, let this cup pass from me, feeling the weight of the shame of not just those sitting in your pew, but the sins of his bride all across the globe. He dies in the place of actual people. He dies in the place of sinners. He, in fact, loves. We'll see that in greater detail here in a second. But number one. Now is the judgment of this world. Number two, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now this is fascinating. The ruler of this world, this language, this is the enemy. This is the enemy who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Who wanted to screw everything up. This formidable foe, so he seems, wins in the garden. But he doesn't. Good old Carmen came out with a song. Remember that? 90s? Good song. Satan thinks he kind of knocked out Jesus, but he hadn't. Jesus, the victor. Satan's called the ruler of this world. Now, when we think about how Satan is the ruler of the world, consider it in this way. He's not in charge of this world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The enemy is not in charge of this world. But he is the ruler of this world in the sense that the way the world works, the systems, the structures, the worldviews that are built by human strength, people creating a life without God, he's the behind-the-scenes ruler of this world. We can do this without God, Satan. You don't need him. You know best, Satan. And he rules this world in that way. Jesus tells us, however, that the ruler of the world is going to be cast out at the cross. He's defeated. There's going to be a death blow. The head will be severed. The enemy will be defeated. And I will tell you this. There's a paradox here because 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, Now we know we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's after the cross. There's a paradox here. Because the enemy is defeated and cast out, and he is present and still roaming the earth. Both of those things are true. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
But if we take Jesus' words seriously, and we should, the enemy does not have the same sort of reign now that he did before the cross. Because the cross, we're told at the cross, the enemy is defeated, done, head severed, cast out. Not the same sort of authority that he used to have. And yet he's a roaring lion. Explain that one. A few weeks ago there was an article that came out. There was a man in Texas who was gardening and uh, saw a rattlesnake. Took a shovel out. Cut the head off. You see this article? See it on the news? Okay. You saw it. All right. Good deal. This rattlesnake severed its head. Goes down to pick up the head of the snake. Bit him. And the full dose of venom went out. He almost died instantaneously. He had internal, just instantly, he began to break down, barely survived. He was in intensive care. He did live. But that severed head bit him. Was that snake dead? Was he defeated? Yeah. Did he still have a bite? Of course. Maybe it's like that. He's defeated. He's cast out. We have authority over him. Where we are, the enemy flees as when Jesus is the enemy flees. And yet he can bite. I don't know. Jesus says that the enemy is going to be <laughs> cast out. The enemy will be cast out. Third thing, he's going to draw all people to himself. This can be seen primarily two different ways. The cross is effective. He says this. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The cross is effective. Jesus didn't die in uncertainty. He didn't die wondering if the cross was going to bring people to himself. He knew when he was going to the cross, this is the epicenter of judgment for all time. All people will be held account here. And he's going to draw people into this work. In other words, he didn't die wondering, will anybody write about this? Will anybody even know? Will my disciples take this message? Will Rome stomp this out? He knew this is the epicenter. I'm coming for this. And everyone who's ever breathed will be called to account because of this work. But he says something else. I will draw all men to myself. This is the same word that's used in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is a cause and effect. Was Jesus wrong? Because let me just ask you this. Is everybody drawn to Jesus? Certainly doesn't seem like it. There's two ways we can consider this. Number one, all people drawn to himself so that all judgment is here. Whether you know about Jesus or not. You're going to have to be, a per, you're going to be standing someday before God giving account for what you've done for him, done with him. You're going to give an account. All people drawn. But also in this, this is all without distinction. We should understand this in the same way we understand Romans chapter 5, where Jesus says that he died and he purchased a people from God for every tribe, tongue, and nation. And when we read, I will draw all people to myself, he is blowing this whole just Jewish people thing up. And saying, not only will the Jewish people here be drawn to me, but all people here will be drawn to me. 
All people will be drawn to me. And this is the promise of the cross of Christ, is that Jesus is buying people, redeeming people, purchasing people from every tribe and tongue. And at the wedding supper of the Lamb, we'll be there and every single person, not just Jewish people, every tribe, every tongue, even to this day that's unknown out there, there will be people who are at that dinner. It's going to be a beautiful thing. Jesus tells us that the cross is effective. It works. All men will be called to account. And then we see the turning of the crowd. That's it. Apparently this set them off. Look at verse 33 and verse 34. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The crowd was clear yesterday on who Jesus was. Now he starts talking about his death. How could you be the Messiah? How could you be the Messiah telling me that you're going to die? They missed it. They did not see. In their mind, the Messiah can't die. Rome must be overthrown. The Davidic rule and kingdom must be reestablished. The law of Moses must be put on display in front of every civil institution but for all of Rome. They missed the true Messiah. Their expectation of the Messiah was different. They misunderstood the Bible and used the very words that de described Jesus to be the Messiah against him. And Jesus turns to this crowd and he tells them they're in darkness and then he calls them out of darkness. I love evangelist Jesus. Verse 35 and 36, look at this. So Jesus said to him, to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk, in, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, while you have the light, believe in the light that you might be sons of life. Upon hearing the crowd's response, from going from the hero of the crowd to the butt of the joke of the crowd, he tells them that they're in the dark. It's like he's standing appealing, brothers and sisters, the light is here. The truth is before you. What I'm telling you about my death, what I'm telling you about this hour, is true. And if you don't believe me, darkness will overtake you. Come to me. Believe me. I'm telling you the truth. This is before you, the light. If you get caught in darkness, you will be lost. While you have the light, come to the light. Now, although that was spoken before the cross to those Jewish people, the truth remains with us today. If you don't know Jesus, there's still time. And God is patient with you. And what he has declared today in this word, what I have tried to be faithful to present to you, is reality, whether you realize it or not. And you have time. Now, today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins and believe in the light. Believe in in Jesus. This is John's effort in the gospel. He's wanting people, he's appealing people to consider Jesus' words and believe in him. 
He wants people to believe in Jesus. He wants people to come to the light. Evangelistic appeal is everywhere. Believe in Jesus. Come to the light. He is true. Life is not found in getting it life, getting it for ourselves. Those who try to get life and live their life their own way, going with the ruler of this world, they're walking in darkness. Just darkness. They don't know it. It's walking in darkness and thinking, I got the light, I got the light, and you're blind. But this morning we can consider the fact that God loves sinners and that upon being lifted up, He's drawing people to himself. Here's the second half. The cross declares you're a sinner, but here's the deal. The cross declares you're loved. God loves you. He sent his son to die in the place of sinners. To rescue a bride. To save you. And here's the point. If you get that, the cross isn't about your affirmation of your greatness and wonder. The cross is where we look to see Jesus' greatness and wonder. If you get that, what happens inside of us ought to be explosions of praise and adoration. We can turn from ourselves again this morning. We can look to the light. We can trust again to Jesus, not to get resaved, but to come to Him to drink a glass of water, to be refreshed, to hear the good news again that I am loved. And when people trust in Jesus, they glorify God. And if you'll sing songs this morning, and if you'll respond in these songs and you'll sing, the reason came, Jesus came to die was for your sins to be forgiven so that you would sing songs of praise right now. That you would respond to His grace and His mercy, His benevolence to you with thankfulness. And we get to come right now and sing these songs as they come here in a second. And we get to function at the bullseye purpose, the center of the entire universe, by just praising God. God, thank you. I praise you for your grace. I praise you for your mercy. If you don't know him this morning, I would call you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. If you do know him, I would call you to get to the heart of the reason Jesus came. Let's worship him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. I don't want to be like the crowd. Jesus, thank you for coming, seeking and saving the lost. Thank you for opening my eyes to truth. Thank you for opening my heart, changing my heart so that I could believe. Help us to respond to what you did for us with praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.